I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 tonight. Matthew chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now all those people are dead. John has been beheaded. And uh, Elijah, of course, and Jeremiah and the other prophets are dead as well. So the people, at least a certain segment of the population, thought that Jesus was reincarnated from one of these guys. Verse 15, then he said unto them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the English uh, translation doesn't show it, but there's a play on words. When he calls him Peter, he's, t- he's using a name that means little pebbles, almost like shifting sand. So when he's talking about Peter and says upon this rock, he's not talking about Peter being the rock. He's talking about the revelation of the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. That's the rock that he builds the church on, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, now notice verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice the binding and loosing starts here, not in heaven. Now notice he said that I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Again, he didn't say keys to the kingdom. He said keys of the kingdom. Now if we had hotel keys... If we had a key to the hotel, that means we could get into the front door and probably up to the lobby. But if we had the keys of the hotel, that means we could go in any and every door there is. So when he says, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the ability to understand. They didn't have locks on their doors like we do. And in some uh, cases, in uh, some cultures, there are um, keys have a different purpose. Keys were something that you wore around your belt or hanging from your belt to show that you had higher, uh, gained some higher learning, higher, uh, well, what am I trying to say? Higher learning is the only word that's coming to me. That you've been to what we might know of as college or uh, some uh, institution of higher learning. So the keys were a, a noticeable sign that uh, would identify you as having the knowledge that, uh, that whatever the key represented. So he said, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 to see what Jesus defined this to be. The disciples came to Jesus and asked him to teach them to pray. So he begins in verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray you, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Now, folks, I'm going to have to tell off on myself a little bit here. It's just been within the last several years that I got a revelation about the kingdom of heaven that I should have had all along. It's always bugged me when it's the, the scripture says and all four gospels identify and relate it. It's always bugged me how Jesus would send the disciples out to preach. And he sent them out to heal the sick. Yet even at the end of his life, the end of his earthly ministry, they weren't all convinced of who he was. I always thought that they went and preached that Jesus was the Messiah. 
Well, if they're out preaching Jesus is the Messiah, then why in Matthew chapter 16 did Jesus ask, who do you say I am? Wouldn't their response have been or should have been if they'd been out preaching that Jesus was the Messiah? Shouldn't their response have been something like, well, we're who you said you are. We believe you are the Christ just like you said. Why would he ask them, who do you say I am? The fact is, folks, that there were only a couple of places where Jesus really identified who he was. Every other place he called himself the son of man. In other words, he represented, he identified, I should say, he identified with man when he was here on the earth, not God. Now we know he was operating according to the will of God. He said that I only say or do the things that my father shows me or tells me. So he was obviously operating by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that was on him and had anointed him. But of the 65 times that Jesus refers to himself in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, 60 of them he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Only five he calls himself the Son of God, and three of those are in the same setting. So it came to my understanding that things were operating on the earth when Jesus was here. Things were operating among the disciples in a whole lot different manner than what I expected it to be. We didn't continue to read, but the, the next verse in Matthew chapter 16, after Jesus talks about giving them the keys to the kingdom of heaven, it says, then he straightly charged them not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah, the Christ. He straightly charged them. He forbid them to tell anybody what he had just identified to them based on Peter's response. That was not the purpose of Jesus being here on the earth. The purpose for Jesus being here on the earth, and by that I mean his three years of ministry. The purpose for his three years of ministry was to identify for mankind what God was like. To reveal the kingdom of God, in other words. Now here in what's called the Lord's Prayer, it's really not the Lord's Prayer, it's the Disciples' Prayer. And it's not a New Testament prayer. Don't get me wrong, there are some good principles in that prayer that we could apply. But the name of Jesus is not there. And in the day that we live in, all prayers should be directed to the Father in the name of Jesus, according to what Jesus told us. So this is not a New Testament prayer, but there's some wonderful, wonderful truth here. And this is truth that I have only recently begun to see. And I say recently, it's been within the last several years. He identifies what the kingdom of God is. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is where the will of God is done here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now, it's different for us. They were praying, the disciples were praying at Jesus' direction for the kingdom to come. And you remember that there were several occasions where Jesus sent out the disciples. He sent out the 12, told them to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And if the people would receive it, then heal the sick that are therein. And they did. So what are they preaching? They're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They're not talking about Jesus. They're not preaching Jesus the Messiah. They're preaching that God wants things to be for you in your life here on the earth just like it is in heaven. And healing was the sign of that. Well, we certainly know there's no sickness or disease in heaven, is there? There's no poverty or lack in heaven. There's nothing that could hurt or harm anybody. Nothing to bring a tear to anybody's eye in heaven. And that's the way God wants it to be for you and me here on the earth. Even in the Old Testament, it talked about their obedience when uh, Moses is going off the scene and Joshua is going to take his place as the leader of the children of Israel. Moses tells the people by the direction of God that if they'll keep the commandments, if they'll keep the law, 
if they'll serve God and obey him and do what his word says to do, then their existence would be like days of heaven on the earth is the, fr- the phrase that Moses used. Days of heaven on the earth. Well, that sounds pretty similar to me, to Jesus' definition of the kingdom of God, where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. Now look with me over to Colossians chapter 1. Let me prove to you that it's changed for us. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is uh, uh, talking about the prayer that he's praying for the church at uh, Colossae. Well, let's just back up and get to start in verse 9 and get the context. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Notice that. He wants us to know of his will. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Notice the word hath is past tense. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath, past tense, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now folks, what is the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of Jesus, if not the kingdom of God? So that tells us that the kingdom of God that Jesus told the disciples to go out and preach was near. When he told them to preach the kingdom of God is nigh, that's what it means. It means near. It's close to being here. Well, for us, since Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, it's not close. It is here. Who has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. We've been translated into the kingdom of God. The kingdom where God wants everything to be here on the earth in your life just like it is in heaven. Now, I've been pastoring the church for about 33 years, 33 and a half years, going on 33 and a half years. And I've been in ministry for a couple of years before that. And I have hardly ever had anybody come and ask me what things are like in heaven. The exception to that is sometimes I've had wives whose husbands have gone on to be with the Lord ask about do we live together as husband and wife in heaven and and that type of thing. And all I know is Jesus said in heaven it's like with the angels they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so it's going to have to be some way different There's got to be some kind of difference for Jesus to answer the way that he did concerning the same subject. But outside of that, nobody asks about healing in heaven. Nobody asks about prosperity in heaven. Nobody asks about peace in heaven. We know that those are things that exist there. We know that's the way it is in heaven. Now, folks, when God created the earth, how did he create it? Did he change from his desire for things to be in heaven when he made things here on the earth God doesn't change so if God wants things to be a certain way in heaven if he wants there to be no sickness or disease or nothing that can hurt or harm mankind no lack nothing to disturb us in any way if he wanted that in heaven or wants that in heaven which he obviously does that's the way he made heaven how could he being the same God make things any different here on the earth I would present to you folks and and suggest 
that before the fall of man, Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden were living in heaven on earth. What else could we call that? Until sin entered the scene, things were here on the earth just like they are in heaven. What did God change when man fell? Did all of a sudden God who cannot change, God who is the author of every good and perfect thing, every good and perfect gift which comes down from him, did God look at man and say, well, you've blown it. Now that sin has entered the scene, I don't want good things for you anymore. I want you to be sick. I want you to learn from me through poverty and unrest and all these other terrible things, tragedy and disaster. Now those things are going to be my plan for teaching you. Does anybody really believe that? God doesn't change. Just because man fell, God didn't change a bit. And since God doesn't change, his original will for man has to be his present day will for man. If he wanted man to rule over the earth, remember Genesis 126, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the, over the earth. Well, if God ever wanted man to have authority and dominion over the earth, then he still wants man to have authority and dominion over the earth. If he created man for the purpose of having authority here on the earth, then that's man's purpose today. God didn't change. God can't change. So when Jesus starts preaching the kingdom of the gospel or preaching about the benefits of the kingdom of God, he's telling them just what we're talking about tonight. He's telling them that God wants for them in heaven just like he, God wants for them on the earth just like it is in heaven. Are you with me? Well, we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. In other words, there is nothing, no thing. There is no one. There is no situation. There is no experience. There is no personage that can stop us from experiencing the will of God here on the earth in our own lives, just like we'll experience the will of God in heaven. We can, in other words, have everything that we know about God in heaven here on the earth because that's the way God created it. Now, there's some, some scriptures that Paul talks about some things. Well, let's just look at a couple. Look with me first to John chapter 8. No, scratch that. Look with me to Luke chapter 17. I was trying to cut some corners and I don't think I should. If I don't get finished with this, we'll just make a series out of it. Luke chapter 17, notice verse 20. When Jesus was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered and said, and said to them, the kingdom of God comes not with observation. Now, observation means sight, physical sight. In other words, he's saying you can't see the kingdom of God. We can see the results of the kingdom of God, but you can't see it itself. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, verse 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God that we've been translated into through the redeeming work of Jesus, the redeeming blood of Jesus, now we've been translated into the kingdom of God. We have clear sailing 
to have the same things here in our life on the earth that, that we'll have in heaven. And notice where that kingdom comes from. He said that kingdom is within you. Everybody wanted to know, and this was part of the, the, the examination or the, the questions people had for Jesus regarding the Messiah. Most Jews in Jesus' day interpreted the scriptures about Jesus setting up or God setting up through the Messiah a kingdom. They thought that meant rule, earthly rule. They thought that meant them getting out of front of the bondage of the uh, 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 Romans and starting their own state and that kind of thing, having things before, like it was before the uh, kingdom was divided and they fell into sin. They fell captive to uh, nation after nation. They thought, the majority of them thought, that the kingdom of God being set up here on the earth would be a physical kingdom. And Jesus is trying to tell them, here's one example, Jesus is trying to tell them it's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a kingdom where we defeat all of our enemies in war and just create our own existence here and uh, under the boundaries or territories that were granted to Israel by God to Abraham. He's saying the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. It's an unseen kingdom. It's the kingdom within you. It's the kingdom within you. Now, folks, the kingdom within us has to be a spiritual kingdom. Because if it is within us, inside each of our bodies is the spirit that is recreated when, we're make, when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives and accept him as our Lord and Savior. So the kingdom is the kingdom of the recreated human spirit. Let me show you another scripture. Look with me to John, uh, Mark chapter 4. I want to, um, let me shift gears a little bit here. This is the thing that has gotten me started, the thing that I've been meditating on for the last, I don't know, couple of weeks. It's a phrase that keeps going over and over and over again on the inside of me. Mark chapter 4 is where Jesus tells the story, the parable of the sower sowing the word. And the disciples come to him after the crowds leave. The disciples come to him and ask him to show them or to uh, explain to them the meaning of the parable. Now notice verse 11. Jesus answered unto them and said, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. Then he quotes Isaiah when he says that seeing they might, see, might not see and hearing they might not understand, lest they should come to an understanding and I should forgive their sins and save them. Now God doesn't in any way want to hide himself from mankind. But you know as well as I do, the disciples didn't know at that point in time. But you know as well as I do that the whole purpose and the whole point of the parable of the sower sowing the word has to do with the attention that we give to the word, the place we give it in our lives, and so forth. So when Jesus says unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, that means not everybody's going to have that understanding. Not that everybody could. If everybody gave the attention to the word of God that he describes and defines here in this parable, it's available to anybody and everybody. 
But unto the ones that put the word first, to the ones that keep the word of God and hold fast to the word of God and keep it in the proper place of priority in their lives, build their lives around it, they're the ones that are going to understand the mystery or the secret. Most translations translate that secret. The secret of the kingdom of God. There is a secret to the kingdom of God. Now there's no secret about coming into the family of God. That's widely known, widely accepted. That comes as a result of making Jesus the Lord of your life. Well, that helps you to enter into God's kingdom. But from there, what you experience of what Jesus paid for is up to you. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Beginning in verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, what causes us to know the truth? A lot of people would read that and say, well, what causes us to know the truth is coming into the family of God. But Jesus made a distinction between believers and disciples. He made a distinction between believers and disciples. Believers are the ones that come into the family of God. And these would have, at that point in time, if they were able to, if Jesus' blood had already been spilled, then their believing would have caused them to enter into the family of God or enter into the kingdom of God in that sense. But then he said to the believers, he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Folks, in any and every church, there are believers and there are disciples. And he said the disciples, the ones that continue in the word, the disciples are going to be the ones that walk in freedom based on the truth of God's word. Not the believers. That's why so many people come up with the doctrine that God wants different things for different people and he treats people differently and some people he wants to heal and other people he wants to be sick and so forth. If you've got two people in, uh, in any church, in any congregation, both of them are faced with sickness and disease. One, through their knowledge of the word that came by continuing in the word and holding the word first place in their lives, might receive their healing. And the other maybe loves God just as much, but because they don't put the same priority of the word in their lives, the disciple is healed and the believer is not. And that causes confusion for a lot of people. And a lot of people will come up with the idea that God doesn't want healing for everybody. It's not God's will to heal everybody. He'll heal some. And, of course, he has the power to heal in any, any and every uh, situation. But Jesus told us that that's not the way it works. Jesus said the disciples are the one through continuing in the word. They're the ones that know the truth that sets them free or that will deliver them. Jesus went on to say, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now that word indeed means free in every, in, uh, every aspect, every respect of life. So if you've been set free, you've been delivered in every area from every work of the devil. That's what belongs to the church in potential. But whether or not you or I realize it depends on our continuing in the word. Whether or not we continue in the word. Let's look at some other examples. In Matthew chapter 7, for example, these things are spoken of in different terms. 
Let's start in verse... Mm. 24. Matthew 7, verse 24. Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. Same word, same opportunity to hear, same opportunity to receive what God's saying. But everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Notice Jesus is saying that there's a distinction between these two people. Same experience, same storm, same flood, same rain. You could even you could describe this either positively or negatively because rain is not only a type of a storm which you might want to believe God out of, but rain is talked about as a work of the Holy Ghost in the earth too. So whether you want to identify this as a blessing or a curse, the one who stands is the one who has the appropriate attitude toward the word. The one that puts the word in, in a place of priority, the proper place of priority that it should have in our lives. Notice the next verses. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I want you to notice, folks, they were astonished at his doctrine, not at him. It doesn't say they were astonished at the great works that he did. It says they were astonished at his doctrine and then describes what doctrine they were uh, amazed at. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now the word one is in italics in that verse which means the translators added it. They probably added it because their understanding at the time was that Jesus was teaching that he had authority. But that's not what these words mean. The words as having literally means how to hold. So they were astonished at Jesus' doctrine for he taught them how to hold authority. He taught them that man had authority. He taught them what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. That God's original intent for man was to have authority on the earth. And man didn't lose that. I thought for years I've heard people say and I've probably even preached it in times past as well. That when Adam and Eve fell they lost their authority in the earth. But that can't be right folks. Because if that was true, then why did God say in Numbers chapter 14, after they had rejected his plan to go into the promised land, he said to Moses, tell them, say unto them, this is the oracle of God. The oracle of God is a reference that means an unchanging law. He said, speak unto them. It is the oracle of God. I will do unto you as you have spoken in my ears. Well, then who controls the outcome in that situation? They did, not God. And if man didn't have authority, then why did the Bible say again in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30, I think it's verse 30, Behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that thou and thy seed may live. If man's not the one with authority, why is God telling him to choose? We know how the devil operates in the earth. We know he lies and deceives people. We know that he has a hand in governments in this earth. Always has and always will. 
But if Satan is the only one in authority, if he is the one that exclusively has authority because of Adam and Eve's sin and the fall in the garden, then how in the world did Israel have any good kings? That came as a matter of choice. The devil's not the one with authority. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan is the God of this world. That's right. And the word world means time. It doesn't mean planet. The planet belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. That's a word that means the planet. There's another word that's translated world that's the word cosmos. It means the world system. Well, the world system didn't change when Adam and Eve fell. We just had a new player in the mix. Satan is not the God of this world system. Now he has influence over all of mankind to whatever degree that man gives him that opportunity and opens the door for him. But the way that he controls governments is lying and deceiving. Not in any way that he can make man do what he doesn't want to do, what man doesn't want to do. He can't keep you from getting saved. He can't keep you from making a decision to continue in the work. He might try to discourage you. He'll bring thoughts or affliction or different things to try to turn you away from the decision to continue in the word. But he can't stop it. Well, what kind of God of this world is he if he can't even do that? Now, the Bible says he's the God of this world at this present time. He's operating as the God of this world, influencing mankind. Or maybe a better way to say that is trying to force mankind to deceive mankind into misusing his authority here on the earth so he can hold him captive. But that's all he can do. As I said before, man was created to have authority on the earth. That's still God's plan. Now look with me over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For if, literally since, by one man's offense, death reigned by one, talking about Adam and Eve falling in the garden again, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now where is he talking about man reigning? That has to be a reference to the kingdom of God, doesn't it? He's saying that it will take hold. And that's really what that word receive means. If we'll take hold of the fact that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. If we'll take hold of the fact that by the grace of God, Jesus paid the price for us. Paid what price? Well, he certainly paid the price for sin and spiritual death. But he also paid the price so that we could operate in the kingdom of God. By Jesus' definition, where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. Look with me to Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate that last phrase, which is your spiritual worship. Remember when Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4, 
They that worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. Spiritual worship isn't what us charismatics think it is. It's not just singing or praising God in other tongues. That's a good way to praise God. But spiritual worship is when you bring your body into subjection according to what the word says we should do. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, folks, I want you to recognize that he calls the will of God perfect, good, perfect, and acceptable. How many wills does God have? Does he have three? One's good, one's perfect, and the other is acceptable. Now, there's no question that we can walk marginally in the will of God. By that, I mean we can walk in the will of God in some respects, and in other respects, we don't. We've certainly walked in the will of God when we made Jesus the Lord of our lives. But if we don't accept what the Bible says about healing, for example, then we're not walking in God's perfect will according to the health that was provided by the blood of Jesus. So in one sense, we're walking in the will of God. In another sense, we're not walking in the will of God under those conditions. But I would submit to you folks that God has only one will, and it's good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, the words to prove, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove. That word prove means to determine by experience. He's telling us how to experience the will of God. He's telling us how to experience the kingdom of God. And that is by renewing our minds to the truth of the word. He said that's where the transformation takes place. Folks, I want want you to understand something. that This is the mystery of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdom of God is that you can have in your life here and now, right now, during this time on the earth, things just exactly the way they are in heaven. Doesn't mean you won't be attacked by the enemy. Doesn't mean the devil will go away and never bother you. But it means we can be victorious in every area of life if we'll learn to control our thoughts. It's the renewing of the mind that is the transforming power of God. If we can learn to control our thoughts, then we can walk in God's perfect will in every area. Now, why is controlling our thoughts such a big deal? Because if you think right, you will speak right. If you think according to the truth, then you'll speak the truth. Remember where we started over in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said, I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know how to bind the right things here on the earth? Renew your mind to the word. You know how to loose the right things here on the earth? Renew your mind to the word. Now notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is exactly what Paul was referring to. Second Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3, he said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Notice the strongholds that the devil builds up in our minds or builds up in our lives are in our minds. 
the fix, the cure for pulling down Satan's defenses in our lives. Those things which keep us from walking in God's perfect will. Having the experience of heaven on earth while we're here. The thing that creates that, the thing that stops that, are wrong thinking or is wrong thinking. Wrong thoughts. Imaginations. The word imaginations literally means reasonings. If you think wrong, then you'll speak wrong. If you speak wrong, then you'll act wrong. Now, by wrong, I mean contrary to the word of God. So what does the Bible tell us to do? It tells us to pull down those strongholds by bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ or to the word of God. Paul's saying the same thing, but using different terminology. He's saying the key to success in the kingdom of God, in all of God's will, is to think the right things and refuse to think and speak the wrong. Now, clearly he doesn't use the phrase kingdom of God. But he's talking about the will of God. He's talking about walking in God's perfect will. Romans 12 verse 2 says that transformation comes so that we can experience God's will or God's will on the earth just like it is in heaven by renewing our minds. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he's still talking about the operation of the mind. He's talking about and really defining for us how we renew our minds. We renew our minds by refusing to think the wrong things or things contrary to the word of God and instead think what the word says. Now real quickly before we dismiss, turn back with me to Matthew to uh, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We were in verse 11. He said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery, the secret of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without or outside, all these things are done in parables. Who are the people that are without? Well, certainly the unsaved would be without. But there are going to be a lot of people that are without that are in the family of God too. Those people that are without are going to be like the ones Jesus identified uh, or contrasted between believers and disciples. There are going to be a lot of people in the family of God Maybe the majority of people that are in the family of God that don't continue in the word to walk in his will concerning healing, to walk in his will concerning provision, to walk in his will concerning the peace of God, to walk in his will concerning the blessing of family and relationships and so forth. There are going to be a lot of people that through ignorance, and by that I'm not, I don't mean stupidity. Some people are stupid, no question about that. But I'm talking about the ignorant, unknowing that these things are available. Because you know as well as I do, the church doesn't measure on anything except getting saved. And after you get saved, what are we supposed to do? I think a lot of Christians are just waiting it out, hoping Jesus will come soon. But God's purpose, God's plan... His original plan and his present day plan is for man to exercise authority on the earth so that he lives an existence of like days of heaven on the earth. God never will change from that plan. So what does he tell them? He said unto them, verse 13, 
Don't you know this parable? How then will you know all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground. Who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. But they have no root in themselves. This word root is the word moisture. In other words, they don't continue the water of the word. And have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundred. What's the difference in these different types of ground and if these uh, different types of ground identifies mankind then he's talking about there being four different kinds of people folks I would submit to you that there are four different types of Christians there are some Christians that they're in the family of God they're, they're made it they're, their eternal security is set and so they give no attention to the word of God at all if they hear the word the devil distracts them or turns their attention away to something else such that they don't even consider living a different existence than what they have. This is what Paul talking to the Corinthians talked about living as mere men. Then the stony ground. The stony ground could be a type of Christian who gives a little bit more attention to the things of God than the wayside did but not enough so that they continue in the word to water it. Now, folks, you need to understand this. This is really important because it goes back to the, to the mystery of the kingdom. Watering the word is speaking the word. Planting the word is by speaking the word. So he's talking about taking care of the seed that's after it's sown. How do you take care of the seed that's sown? How do you take care of the promise of God that you speak into your life? You keep speaking it. Remember in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, God told Joshua, this book of the law, meaning the word of God, that's all they had back then. This book of the law or this word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth. How do you keep the word from departing out of your mouth? Every time you say it, it's gone. The only way you can keep it from departing out of your mouth is to keep saying it. And that's what watering the word is. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. Meditation must have something to do with the words we speak. It's not the Eastern type of meditation. Some Christians get freaked out at the word meditation. It's not sitting in a lotus position and humming to yourself. It's not emptying your mind of all things that, and get this serene or inner peace or whatever they call it. It's speaking the word. We don't want to empty our minds. We want to fill our minds with the word. So this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do all that's written therein. Notice that God told Joshua, it's what you think, what you think is what you'll wind up doing. That thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for therein, if you take care of the word, keep speaking the word, give the word first place, just like he's talking about in this parable, he's saying, then you'll make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. One of the most amazing things about the scripture in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 
is that he doesn't even say that God will make your way prosperous. He said you will make your way prosperous. Now, why would he get it, put the responsibility on us? Because we're the ones that have authority on the earth. I think a lot of the church is trying to get God to take authority that he gave them. And again, probably through ignorance, more than anything else, they don't know or they don't understand that they're the ones that have authority and they're the ones that are supposed to use the authority. And if they don't use their authority, nothing will get done. But that's exactly what God said. Then there are Christians like the thorny ground. They put the seed in the earth. They speak the word of God into their lives. But they get distracted. The cares of this world enter in. The deceitfulness of riches comes against them. And the lusts or desires for other things entering in choke the word. It's not that they didn't start on the right thing. They just gave up before it was over. They turned loose of the word before they saw results. But finally, the fourth type of ground. These are they on the good ground, such as hear the word and keep it. They hear the word and keep it. They continue to water it. They don't get distracted away from it. They don't get discouraged because it's a long time to harvest. And they bring forth fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. Now, folks, the only thing that I can imagine that would make the difference between the 30 and the 60 and the 100 fold categories is the attention that they give to the word while they're believing God, while they're speaking it. Jesus said of these things, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants you to bring forth fruit. He wants your life to be just like it's going to be in heaven. He wants your time here on the earth to be so filled with blessings that it'll be just like it's going to be in heaven. Now, everybody's looking forward to heaven. Everybody wants to get to heaven. May not be ready to go yet, but everybody wants to get to heaven. Why do we want to get to heaven so much? Well, it seems to me one reason, maybe the primary reason, but certainly one reason is that there are no bad days in heaven. There are no ups and downs. There's no rent collector coming with a bill that's due. Things in heaven are taken care of. Things in heaven are only joyful, only positive, only good. But folks, that's what God wants to life to be like here for you now he wants you to walk in his blessings to such a degree that nothing the devil brings against you will prosper that the devil has no claim on you that the devil has no place in you because we've taken hold of the righteousness of God we've accepted Jesus sacrifice once and for all then as we speak the word and hold fast to the word and control our thought life through faith and patience we inherit the promises unto you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God now people that don't know the mystery people that don't know the secret they're not going to like that you've got it they're not going to be happy when you prosper and they don't they're not going to be happy when you receive your healing and they don't they're not going to like that one little bit. And for the most part, unfortunately in my opinion, but for the most part, 
People that don't like it don't want to learn themselves. They just don't want you to have it. Maybe the closer we get to the end, the more that will change. But unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Folks, there is a secret. And that secret is what you say is what you'll have. What you say is what you'll have. That's the secret. That's the mystery. That's the key, or one of the keys at least, of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. We thank you that the word of God reveals to us your perfect plan for us and what the redemptive work of Jesus was all about. We thank you, Father, that Jesus did not just come so that we'd be in your family. If that was all that he paid the price for, that would be enough. But your word says because of your goodness and your willingness to bless your people, bless your family, you said that he brought healing to our sick bodies. He said that the word says that you brought abundance to replace poverty and lack. The word says that Jesus brought us your peace so that we not be depressed. The word says that Jesus gave us every good thing. The Holy Spirit tells us that all things that pertain to life and godliness have been given to us through the knowledge of you. We thank you, Father, for making that your plan, for honoring your word, and for watching over it to perform it in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.